Hello to all of my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again, and I hope all of you had a good St. Patrick's Day holiday. And here we are discussing Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse by Eric J. Dolan. Well, in this episode, we're going to be discussing about the casualties of war. Now, when I often think of casualties in times of warfare, I often think of people who have lost their lives, not just soldiers on the battlefield, but how about civilians, let alone innocent civilians, who are the victims of uh, enemy aggression, whether it's um, enemy soldiers coming into a city and taking people hostage, or let alone executing people against their own will. So casualties can mean more than just dying on the battlefield. But in this episode, discussing casualties of war, we're going to discuss a variety of um, matters that fall under casualties of war. And one of those casualties of war is none other than lighthouses. But if I tell you too much now, many of you all will probably say to me, or be thinking rather, if he tells all this stuff now, then what's the point in having a, a podcast that's going to have significant meaning? Okay, well, I answered part of my question right there. So, here we begin with another episode of Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, and discussing the casualties of war. So our leadoff question for tonight is the following. Which of the 13 colonies became the cradle for American independence? In other words, when I mean cradle, how about, you know, the, um, how about the bed for independence? How about the, uh, the uh, foundation? You know, after all, not all 13 colonies were on the same page with independence, but when I think of one colony in particular that's, that stood out as being that beacon, or let alone a brilliant beacon for independence, how about Massachusetts? Why do I say Massachusetts? Well, after all, they were the ones that uh, were the first to um, rally against the Stamp Act, as well as the Townshend duties. They were also the first to um, express their displeasure at the British firing into the crowd on the night of March 5th, 1770, given that it happened on their own soil, a.k.a. the Boston Massacre. Massachusetts is also leading the fight against the Tea Act of 1773, where people were forced to pay the dreaded tax on the tea. You know, the taxes themselves had been lifted for every other duty except the tea. However, over time, other colonies will take up arms with Massachusetts in being on the same page to where they come together and have said enough is enough. These grievances have gone too far to where reconciliation with England may no longer seem feasible, or should I say, let alone doable. So the answer to the, the lead-off question right here, folks, is that um, Massachusetts is the first of the 13 colonies that, not, that becomes a beacon for independence, but it was the first of the 13 
to become that true cradle for American independence. But between April and June of 1775, hostilities broke out between Patriots and Redcoats on the battlefield three times, two on April the 19th at Lexington and Concord, a.k.a. the shots heard round the world, and the other being two months later on June 17th at Bunker Hill, the battle that, in many historians' eyes, was the one that signified no um, turning back. Now, the rest of colonial America, while they are concerned about the events in Massachusetts, there are a handful of signers in Philadelphia who remain skeptical about separation from England. Not just signers, or what we might call delegates, but eventual signers to the Declaration of Independence. But even everyday, everyday ordinary people throughout the 13 colonies are still uh, skeptical about wanting to uh, declare separation from England. Well, it's safe to say that you have thirds. One third is uh, patriotic, the other third is loyalist, and the other third is neutral. But the good news is that, so that one of the 13 colonies, you know, somebody has to lay the foundation. Somebody has to serve as a beacon of hope. In other words, there, there will always be a light at the end of the tunnel, even when things are, are really bad. And Massachusetts has given us that um, cornerstone. If it weren't for the people of Massachusetts, I'm not sure who might have um, been that beacon of um, hope in terms of being the one that laid the foundations for, sep for ultimate separation from England. I'd like to say Virginia. But at the same time, we must remember that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, and Virginia has so much to gain, but yet at the same time, she always has a lot to lose. So if any of the other 12 colonies thought about separating from England, who would they have to defer to? Virginia, given that she is the largest of the 13. Now, despite the military engagements that took place from April into June of 1775, as I said a moment ago, and I can say it here again, many Americans, including a handful of our forefathers, in attendance at Philadelphia, the Continental Congress, still remained hopeful that reconciliation between England and her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies, was possible. But in Massachusetts, war itself, or let alone war for independence, was inevitable. So, I should point this out, that when, the, when delegates met in Philadelphia, even in 1774 for the First Continental Congress, and the same going into the Second, those whom are skeptical about independence want to blame someone. They want to blame Massachusetts. So, in other words, they like to blame delegates like John Adams, Samuel Adams, they also want to blame uh, John Hancock, to name a few um, prominent Bostonians. The reason why they'd like to blame um, the Massachusetts men is because they feel that they have caused all of this trouble. They feel that their people back home have been so disrespectful to the king, that they have um, been so, what do you call it, volatile to every idea or means of reconciliation proposed, that they have just been ignorant to where they don't care how perhaps it impacts the rest of 
the rest of colonial America. Well, those who are skeptical may be entitled to their opinions, but at the same time, if the mother country does not want to offer any means of reconciliation or any means of proper modification where proper representation would be um, offered, if they aren't going to extend their version of the olive branch, then how can there be any kind of um, marriage? In other words, the 13 colonies are, um, it's like they're in a wedding. They're in a marriage, not amongst themselves, but amongst the mother country, England. And as uh, John Dickinson of um, Pennsylvania, of course he lived in Delaware, but as he once said, if the if the apron came off, it would be very difficult to tie it back on because once it was taken off, then who's to say that the 13 colonies would want to uh, resubmit their allegiance to the crown? So basically, the knot on the back of the apron is what kept the bond between England and her 13 subjects all together in one um in one form of what we call unison or agreement. So yes, I would like to believe myself that um, that there would still be some hope of reconciliation. After all, even some of our most prominent of forefathers, like Thomas Jefferson, he was somewhat skeptical about um, separation from England. I think many of them knew that separation was just a matter of time, but what it really came down to was, okay, if you really want separation that badly, you're going to have to do a lot of other things differently. In other words, you're going to have to create your own government, and you're going to have to do it without the aid of England. So think about this, folks. You're not so much declaring separation from England. You're giving up everything else that comes along with having a relationship to the mother country, especially when it comes to having goods being brought from overseas um, manufactured in England, say like leather, other fine products that you would depend on coming from England versus being in the colonies because, you know, England might have a greater demand because of a greater population of people who can produce those mass quantity of goods. So, I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, how does this pertain to lighthouses? Well, I'm glad you asked because here's our next question. You know, it's one thing to inflict injuries upon the enemy in battlefield combat, which happened most notably at Concord on April the um, 19th of 1775, and most notably at Bunker Hill on June 17th of 1775. While inflicting injuries upon the enemy is a good thing, at the same time, can physical structures alone determine whom is in control of a city, including its harbor. So think about this, folks. You can inflict all the physical injuries upon your enemy in an open battlefield. But if you don't have a means to protect the physical structures, especially around waters, or let alone a harbor, then how can you be so sure that your city can be safe from the enemy, not just short-term, but long-term? So, lighthouses, for starters, cater to both friends and foe. In other words, there's no boundaries on what a lighthouse will accept and won't accept. Remember, folks, 
prior to prior to our uh, relationship with the mother country beginning to sour um, for a long time British ships sailed in in and out of Boston Harbor British ships did the same coming in and out of Philadelphia New York City all the way south down into Charleston South Carolina and probably uh, Savannah Georgia as well but by the time um, as we get past 1770 into the midway point of the 1770s, a lot of things have changed. Well, after all, you know, Parliament, uh, with those intolerable acts of 1774, most notably the Port Act, which closed the entire port of Boston as a result of uh, the Bostonians' uh, actions from the Tea Party incident a year earlier, as well as other um, acts of hostilities um imposed um, or let alone um, acts of hostilities taken out against uh, custom collectors or aka tax collectors basically our aggression towards the British while yes it may have been um, a noteworthy thing in terms of expressing displeasure at uh, unfair representation Parliament you know at some point has to say well enough is enough and one of those measures was closing the port but that didn't mean Massachusetts no longer had a port. What it basically meant was that the port of um, Boston no longer was open for business. And, of course, people were out of a job. Not just or not just a few people, um, a multitude of people, but the port itself was relocated to Salem, uh, north of Boston, just around the outskirts of uh, right near Marblehead. So, obviously, uh, the ball... The lighthouses in Massachusetts that are around are going to feel the impact of this as well. So, as I said before, uh, lighthouses do cater to both friends and foes, and they did cater to the British. After all, we were on good relations. Of course, that all changed after the ending of the French and Indian War. But secondly, for the people of Boston, the presence of lighthouses meant that the British vessels could sail in and out freely without interruptions, where their forces could be strengthened to getting resupplied. Now, I think that's a big deal right there, folks, because, you know, if British vessels can sail in and out freely without interruptions, who's not to say that they have a greater likelihood of launching a surprise attack by bringing um, Marines or let alone troops onto land, not just burning uh, people's um, homes, but taking uh, families hostage um, to basically putting the city on siege or let alone just putting it um, to where to where we can be uh, deprived of everyday essentials. And since April of 1775, Boston had been under siege. So think about this, folks. This uh, siege has been going on for some time now. Now, I will admit... Um, that Boston siege actually began in 1768 when General Thomas Gage um, brought about uh, close to 3,000 troops into uh, the city of Boston to uh, quell um, violence that had occurred in the aftermath of the uh, Townshend duties as well as the Stamp Act. But of course, Thomas Gage didn't have a whole lot of luck. So the siege of Boston has been going on longer, but from an actual military conflict. It has been going on since April of 1775, when the time, um, during that time when the shots were first heard around the world. 
So to prevent lighthouses from falling into the enemy hands, and who are the enemy hands? The British? The people of Boston decided upon disabling the lighthouses. I think that's a great idea. After all, folks, you know, you can't just sit back and assume, well, they're not going to attack the lighthouses. They're not going to get their hands on them. After all, folks, you know, lighthouses do more than just stand there. You know, people do have to man the lighthouses. They have to find a way to light them. After all, there has to be some kind of leadership as to um, what's going to be allowed and what not to be allowed. So the Massachusetts colony has three uh, lighthouses, being at Little Brewster Island, which is home to Boston Lighthouse, Thacker Island, and Gurnet Point. Now, luckily, um, Gurnet Point and Thacker Island had instant success. At Gurnet Point, the residents of Plymouth were a step ahead in, ex in, ex in a, if I could speak here, that'd be great, in extinguishing the light on April the 23rd, four days after the shots were fired round the world. Whereas Thacker Island followed shortly after. So what I mean by um, disabling the lighthouse, we're not talking about destroying it altogether, but how about removing whale oil, casks of whale oil? How about removing de um, and other um, essential devices that would um, link uh, certain parts to a lighthouse, most notably around um, to hold a light together? In other words, there has to be some kind of what do you call it, electrical um, outlet um, or a setup that would um, keep a light from, you know, breaking. So the bottom line is you want to steal, you want to take away all the essentials there are possible. So this way the enemy won't have any uh, true means to uh, go about lighting the house for their advantage. The British, however, controlled the Boston Lighthouse. And they were caught off guard by Patriot forces whom did a number on the lighthouse. What I mean is that they did a lot of damage to where British ships in the end were limited with getting in and out of the harbor. And this did really upset uh, British, top-level British officials because they had no idea of what was coming. And by the time American forces, or let alone Patriot forces, arrived to um, catch them off guard, they had no means whatsoever of getting in position and firing of course, they still kept the lighthouse, but at, the, but at a bad price. In other words, they hadn't done a very good job of really fortifying the lighthouse to where if it had been fortified better, damage would have been minimal and they could have still gotten an upper hand. Well, isn't, that, isn't it fair to say that, you know, okay, in the 18th century, there's no such thing as the CIA, but at the same time, Intelligence gathering was um, very uh, unique for its time in the 18th century, and how people went about doing it was pretty remarkable. I know, uh, for example, like with Paul Revere at the uh, North End Church, when Revere himself went around alerting people that the British were coming, he had a system put into play where if it was... Um, 
if the light lit in with regards to one light being lit at the um, top of the church, that meant that the British were coming by land. But if there were two lights lit, that meant that the British were coming by sea, or let alone by, um, yes, by seawater. So that was a unique form of intelligence um, operations gathering for its time and alerting um, the people of Boston about how the British were going to arrive into their town. Now, of course, Paul Revere was famous for saying that the British were coming, but I will admit to you all that there was a lot more to the story than him going around on horseback warning everyone. I, I will tell you that he didn't do all the work by himself. Of course, we were told that for years he did all that work um, alone, but he actually didn't. It turns out that one of the primary reasons that he warned Besides warning the general public about the British coming, he did it to warn uh, his fellow uh, Patriot men, most notably uh, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. In other words, the British are coming. You all might want to leave now so that you all don't become uh, prisoners. After all, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, John Hancock, uh, to Charles Prescott and uh, William Dawes, all those men were on, uh, might as well have been public enemy number ones uh, to the British, uh, including Dr. Joseph Warren. After all, they are the leading uh, voices behind um, independence uh, from England, most notably for uh, Massachusetts. But there's your example right there, folks, about intelligence uh, for its time, and that uh, with Boston's North End Church, how Revere went about warning people the British were coming. If one light came on, that meant the British were going to arrive by land. If it was um, two lights, that meant they were arriving by sea. Now, the attack on, on the Boston Lighthouse actually bolstered Patriots' confidence, considering they could now go head-to-head -head with the world's strongest navy. Prior to the Boston Lighthouse attack, American forces were actually using whaleboats to attack nearby islands, burning hay, including seizure of crops and livestock. Why all this plundering? Well, I know plundering can be a bad thing, but sometimes even you, the outsider, or let alone one side of a conflict, you have to, if you're defending your homeland... Don't you think you need to go from all angles to be a step above the enemy? Absolutely. Think about this. Not everyone's going to concentrate their forces mainland. How about going around the islands? After all, people do live on these islands. And if they have um, commodities that you're in desperate need of, don't think for one second you would want to do everything there was possible to keep those um, valuable commodities from falling into the wrong hands. So, how about burning the hay, seizing the crops and livestock? After all, you know, livestock, you get food. So, by doing all that, you're keeping the British from having the most essential day-to-day -day functions, and in some instances, just let alone for existence. Well, how long did Britain's siege of Boston last, considering that the first shots heard round the world were fired at Lexington and Concord in April 1775? Well, I said it earlier, and I'll just say it again here uh, real quick. Uh, for starters, the British siege of Boston dated back to 1768. 
But it turns out that the siege itself, from a military standpoint, um, lasted 11 months. It officially ended on March 17th of 1776, three and a half months before Congress officially declared its separation from England. However, the British Navy fleet still remained, that is, rather a portion of their warships were a nearby distance to the Boston Lighthouse, which continued into mid-June prior to final departure from Boston Harbor. British Marines, however, torched Boston Lighthouse, and by doing so they placed a keg of gunpowder at its base only to blow up a short time later the same day. Maybe it's maybe it was their way of saying, "Hey, you all might have um, you all might have gotten the upper hand on us in Boston." And while yes, we're um, leaving, but it doesn't mean that this battle, or let alone this conflict, it doesn't mean that this conflict alone is coming anywhere to a near end. In other words, we're going to regroup, and we're going to make our way back to America. And we're going to be stronger to where you all will see our full force might at its peak. Far more so than what you saw in Boston. And how true that is. Because uh, a year later in 1776, of course, when we think of 1776, we, you know, we have this grand notion that, okay, we've declared our separation from England uh, that everything is going to be all right, and while yes, there could still be you know other problems, everything will just get resolved in a short period of time. Um, I wished I could say that, folks, but we all know that that was not the that was not the case. What I do know is this: um, this in this next question here, had the attitude towards reconciliation declined in the aftermath of Britain's withdrawal from Boston? Yes. Considering how many events had taken place earlier, most notably like the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, uh, to incidents, let alone legislative um, actions like the uh, Intolerable Acts or the uh, Coercive Acts, to the Townshend Duties, um, the Stamp Act, or the Quartering Act, which forced uh, the people of Massachusetts to uh, house British soldiers um, by providing them a place of shelter, doing all this against their own will. And there was a common theme, not just for the people of Boston, but for the rest of the colonies. Improper representation, or let alone unfair representation. In other words, the colonies did not have people go before them to say, hey, this is unfair, or this is doable. So, in other words, no proper representation whatsoever. So, all of those events, given that they took place earlier leading up to the time when the shots heard around the world were fired at Lexington and Concord, um, obviously um, were very, very um, significant. And in February of 1776, the last big um, piece of legislation that Parliament passes, called the Prohibitory Act, halted all British trade with the 13 colonies. Basically, American ships were subject to British seizures, and not just or any ordinary seizures, but how about British seizures from the Navy? After all, folks, you know, 
Britain is the mightiest empire in the world, so that means her army, or let alone her infantry and her navy, are the two most dominant military forces in the world. Now, I wonder if uh, Parliament's passage of the Prohibitory Act was a little bit of revenge from what the First Continental Congress did in 1774 by placing a one-year ban on um, all goods coming in and out of um, England. In other words, the um, the non-importation agreement pretty much outlawed all uh, goods coming in from England as well as being exported to England. It's very possible that that prohibitory act from 1776 could have um, borne some uh, resemblance in terms of getting revenge. But nonetheless, um, I would say that even that piece of legislation alone may have been the final straw that could have broken the uh, camel's back, considering just how far our olive branch petition had been extended to King George III and Parliament. Okay, so many of you are wondering, okay, now that the British have left Boston, where would the where are British forces going to go next? Well, I could tell you this much, they're not going to spend they're not going to go somewhere where um where patriots are going to outnumber loyalists. They're actually going to go to what we know as New York City. After all, New York City has a very high loyalist population. So, were lighthouses present in New York City? Yes, most notably at Sandy Hook. And we're going to talk about Sandy Hook here momentarily. But before we do, I should uh, mention to you all about a fellow man named William Malcolm. Why is he important? How come he's never really been talked about much before? Well, we do know for starters that he is a well-known New York merchant and patriot whom was joined whom teamed up with Colonel George Taylor, who led a band of militiamen from New Jersey to remove all essentials from the Sandy Hook Lighthouse. Essentials meaning anything from like um casks of whale oil to um anything else that would be of um what do you call it, top level um security to ensure that a lighthouse, you know, gets lit and um anything that is obviously just of significant value. Well, I will tell you this. They did have success in removing all the essentials. However, it wasn't permanent. Well, how can you not have permanent success if you removed all the essentials? I asked myself that same question, too. Well, it turns out in April of 1776, the British took possession of Sandy Hook's tip where the Marines got stationed by land and water offshore, offshore, at a, in other words, that being at a distance. How did this give the British some incredible advantages? Well, for one, it helped give British access to drinking water. Secondly, it, it enabled British to monitor and control primary shipping channel into New York. So, in other words, they could pretty much control who can and can't enter the harbor of New York. And how ironic that the shipping channel into New York also ran by the Sandy Hook Lighthouse. So, if you have access to drinking water, you have 
access to controlling all the shipping that comes into the channel into New York Harbor, which runs by Sandy Hook, that automatically means that the British control the lighthouse. So this really does put us, at being the Patriots, at a disadvantage. Do the Patriots take any action to try to get back the lighthouse? Yes. It's not done by George Washington, but by one of his fellow um, officers named um, Major Benjamin Tupper, whom led a military expedition to take back the Sandy Hook Lighthouse from British control. While he put up, while he engaged in a valiant uh, combat, but it failed in the end, largely in part due to a lack of reinforcements, most notably being New Jersey. Well, why are those in New Jersey being so difficult? Well, it's not a New Jersey problem, folks. What I can tell you is this. The middle colonies are very loyalist. Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, they, are, um, they have a lot of loyalties. That is to the crown. Parliament. They don't, want any, they don't want to have anything to do with separation from England, and they despise everyone else whom has gone against the crown. And I will admit, uh, yes, uh, as I mentioned from the other um, podcast, or my previous podcast, rather, how Philadelphia was a haven for um, Quakers and other uh, and immigrants coming in. While, yes, we'd like to think the Quakers were um, compassionate people, I hate to tell you this, uh, that, but they weren't, especially um, in, during the time of 1777-1778 uh, with, uh, Valley, with Valley Forge, uh, basically which was the, um, the period of time that the Continental Army was either going to make or break. But, um, but what I do know is that, um, is that uh, the Quakers um, were not very, um, what you call, welcoming to those who uh, took up arms against uh, the crown. So, but the problem with New Jersey was that uh, New Jersey, really the problem was that there was a, um, it, the state itself was comprised of divided loyalties. And of course, the majority of, the, of New Jerseyans remained loyal to the crown. And besides, uh, our next question is this, besides Sandy Hook Lighthouse being in the hands of the enemy, being the British, what else did the lighthouse itself become? Okay, I'm sure many of you are thinking, what else could a lighthouse become if, besides um, being used from a military um, standpoint, or let alone a military strategical point? The lighthouse served as a haven for loyalists to run away. It served as a haven for loyalists as well as runaway slaves. Sandy Hook, over time, got a nickname known as Refuge Town, where refugees launched a handful of raids into northern New Jersey, wreaking havoc on defectors, a.k.a. patriots. This meant, sadly, killing patriots to burning their homes. I, I really hate to say this, folks, but I, but it is true. I would have to say that during this time, knowing that 
we don't have 100% unification towards separation from England, and here we're pretty much divided into thirds. Of course, that could be different depending on the colony that you live in, but I do believe it's fair to say that many of our people during this time lived by that Old Testament saying, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. If you hurt me, I hurt you. In other words, these people were barbaric. They didn't want to find any middle ground to uh, resolving a problem. Oh, how dare uh, John Smith defect over to the Patriot side. But you know what we're going to do? We're just going to go burn his home and perhaps kill his family. Oh, how dare John? How dare um, Tom Jones go over to the Loyalist side? And because he's a Loyalist, why don't we go um, tar and feather not only Mr. Smith, but maybe, um, or Mr. Jones rather, but maybe um, destroy his family's property as a way of getting back at how um, they betrayed the rest of the community. Doesn't make it right, folks, but that's how uh, people were back then. They, um, as I said before, from past topics just that involve American Revolution history, just because you were a patriot didn't mean the rest of your family was. And sadly, uh, a lot of families were ruined, all in the name of loyalties. The British occupation of Sandy Hook Lighthouse ended around the same time as Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown, Virginia on October 19, 1781. Well, the Battle of Yorktown is important because um, that did um, mark an end to the war. But, as you will all find out here shortly after, it didn't mean the war itself had totally come to a complete end. But the reason why Yorktown was so significant was because the French had blocked off all access let alone Cornwallis's access to retreat and either go back north to New York or let alone um, head back to England. So in other words, he was forced to uh, witness the wrath that ultimately in the end led the British to surrender. Now, many of you all are probably itching to know about lighthouse uh, stability throughout the Revolutionary War. Did most lighthouses survive throughout the Revolutionary War itself? I would say it's hard to say. Author Eric Dolan um, didn't really uh, point out to say, okay, X number of lighthouses survived, whereas X number didn't in terms of uh, giving um, actual number specification. But most likely a good number were burned. However... Many lighthouses served well. In other words, they served their true fundamental purpose by becoming lookout stations to those in the countryside regarding the arrival and movement of British ships. So there you, I mean, so there we have it right there, folks, that uh, lighthouses, even during the American Revolution, they truly did find their purpose by serving as a as some form of a brilliant beacon. Maybe not the grandest of beacons, but, they, but their beacons were uh, present. 
had they not been around and, and by the time this war breaks out, who's not to say that um, many other people's lives might have been lost to the hands of the enemy? Well, did the Revolutionary War officially end with the British surrender at Yorktown on October 19, 1781? No, it would take another two years. Come September 3, 1783, the Treaty of Paris ended the Revolutionary War altogether. America's surviving lighthouses rescued from those, were rescued from those who sought to use them for personal gain, or let alone improper activity. So in other words, um, had, had this Treaty of Paris not ended, um, who's not to say that um, had not gone into play, who's to say when the war itself would have officially ended? But what I can tell you is this, even after the British surrendered at Yorktown, there were still hostilities, most notably uh, fighting in South Carolina, as well as in um, Georgia. So we must remember that just because um, the British surrendered at Yorktown, it didn't mean that everybody just packed up their bags right away and uh, left, and, and that was the last we heard from them. No, that, that's not the way it worked out. Now, to close out this uh, podcast episode, um, I think we should take the following into consideration. Given that, you know, we've learned that uh, casualties of war is more than just people losing their lives. Lighthouses, obviously, were victims themselves. How many lighthouses were gone, we don't, we don't know. But there were lighthouses that sadly were um, casualties, not so much by means of burning, but in the case with the British taking control of Sandy Hook in New York. But in 1783... While we achieved a, a monumental milestone with the Treaty of Paris ending the Revolutionary War, America, however, existed under a fledgling system of government. How about the Articles of Confederation, where it was a loose confederation comprised of all 13 states? I mean, we might still consider them colonies, but, I, but how about states? I think uh, moving on up from colony to state is a... Um, a big step in the right direction. But even this Articles of Confederation, while it was devised before the war itself ended, and you can't blame our forefathers, I mean, they were doing everything there was in their power to keep um, our government, our provisional government, afloat. But the Articles of Confederation is a very, very flawed system of government. Who's running the show? Well, I hate to tell you this, but the national government isn't. The states, all 13 states are running the show. And the national government, the national government is limited in every capacity as to what it can and cannot do. The, the national government can't even declare war. The states are the ones that have that power. That's scary to think that Georgia could declare war on South Carolina or New York declaring war on New Hampshire. Now, one thing I can tell you here is that uh, there were all kinds of conflicts over land to who had the right to navigate in one another's waters. So wouldn't it be fair to say that if you're going to have all of these um, problems with jurisdictional matters, 
you need something else to replace this fledgling form of government. And thank heavens that four years later in 1787, there were enough smart men out there who realized that, hey, look, if we don't do something about this now, our independence from England isn't going to mean anything. Yes, we may have won a war. We may have won a war for independence against the mightiest empire in the world, but our independence long-term won't mean anything if we don't have a definitive functioning government. Lighthouses would continue to play a vital role for the coming future. However, their future alone revolved around whom would oversee funding as the United States in the post-Revolutionary War era showed scant traces of unification, scant meaning minimal or, or, or none, or let alone independence to where nations abroad were willing to lend a hand by becoming long-term partners. How about alliances? So, here we are, folks. Uh, we're not anywhere close to being a first-world country, or let alone a, or let alone a, a true-world superpower. We won't even become a true world superpower until in, until the years after the Civil War. Of course, I shouldn't be getting that far ahead of the game, but I think we all should just be reminded that the United States didn't become a world superpower overnight, even after we had even after the surrender of Yorktown or let alone the Treaty of Paris. And yes, lighthouses are going to continue to play a vital role, but but on the other hand, this, the future of lighthouses is going to revolve around whom will oversee the funding. So that leads me to tell you all this before wrapping up this uh, session. When I'm back on the air again next with you all, we're going to be talking about, from a governmental standpoint, a debate. Well, it's not just a, one debate, but multiple debates over what level of government will be funding the lighthouses, not just funding for improvements on existing ones, but funding the construction of new lighthouses. After all, when our new government is created, thanks to the Constitution in 1787, and when we do elect our first commander-in-chief, we do have to think to ourselves, how is our, how is our nation's national security going to be? if we are going to expand as a nation. You know, after all, we, mo as much as we'd like to think uh, 13 colonies or 13 states, I think there's more to the United States than just 13 states. And if we're going to expand westward, we have to find ways to um, link the Atlantic Ocean to inland waterways, canals. We also have to think about, okay, if we're going to have access to... Um, to waterways, which we already um, got in the in the Treaty of Paris, like the Great Lakes. Don't you think the Great Lakes are going to need something like uh, structures like lighthouses? Absolutely. So if we're going to be a true powerhouse and we want to expand, we've also got to think about how we're going to get uh, goods and people from point A to point B, but we're also going to have to come up with new ways to build structures uh, like lighthouses that are going to ensure uh, people's um, safety as um, the population grows and people will want to expand westward. 
So when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to be talking about um, governmental funding and how that's going to be attained. Well, thank you for listening. We've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. Take care, and if, I, and if I'm not back on the air again between uh, tomorrow and this weekend, have a great Friday and an upcoming weekend. But who knows, if I'm able to surprise you all, I will certainly make the most out of it, but all for the right reasons. Take care.